For our sermon, we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through the end of that chapter, 26 to 40. So turn there in your Bibles. The spirit of the age is summarized well by the famous 20th century actress some time ago, Catherine Hepburn. So she said, if you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. If you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. Sometimes we can think that the path to, to fun and to freedom in our lives is uninhibited liberty, right? Doing whatever we want, whenever we want. But the problem is this motto for life doesn't really work, does it? Just think about the slogan of Outback Steakhouse. Uh, no rules, just right. Now, they did away with it for some time, but then they came back to it more recently. No rules, just right. Listen to what their chief marketing officer says. This is who we are, and it's the foundation for our culture. We'll break the rules to do what it takes to make sure we deliver a dining experience that's just right each and every time. Does that make any sense? What does that even mean? <laughs> Are they okay if their customers live by this motto? No, what if I would like to park directly in front of the front door so I don't have to walk very far? Or if I don't want to pay for my meal, would that be okay to break those rules because I want to have the best dining experience possible that's just right for me? Now, it is true that some rules are bad, right? Rules can be used in, in harmful ways. They can be used by the rich and powerful to oppress people. Uh, rules can be laid down in order to harm other people. But some rules are not bad, and rules in themselves are not bad. They, they are tools which can be used for good or for bad. Uh, in fact, though, rules can be quite good and helpful. They can be used to protect the weak and poor rather than to oppress them. They can even help us to express love for one another. Have you ever thought about rules can be used to express love for one another. So one very simple example are traffic rules. And we all tend to fudge them from time to time, right? But what is the, what's the purpose of the red light and the fact that you're not supposed to run red lights? Now, if you run a red light and you cream someone in another car, you have not expressed your love for them. You have expressed... Your, your lack of love for them, that you don't care anything about keeping this rule for their sake. But we can see even traffic rules as a way we can express care for the people around us. Uh, now, some of you are feeling really guilty, and now you're going you're gonna to slow down when it's a yellow light, because yellow means what? Slow down, yield. Uh, it's about to be red. Uh, think about two family house rules. Um, they are fashioned out of love for one another in the family. Pick up your dirty clothes is a rule that is fashioned out of love for your mother and your father. Put the trash in the trash can. Clean up your plates after dinner and put them in the sink or in the dishwasher. No hitting, no yelling, no, rule, no rude speaking to one another. What are, are these just rules to inhibit our freedom, to oppress us, to keep us from having fun? Well, maybe so, but really... They are fashioned out of love for one another, that those in the family would be protected from our individual 
individualism, and from our selfishness. These can help us to express our love for one another. And in the same way, there are house rules for the church. These are given uh, that we might express love for one another in the church. They help promote order in the church. They help to show us how to love one another in specific situations. So consider our passage this morning in that light. Paul is laying down rules for the Corinthians, particularly for when they gather together as a church and as they use their spiritual gifts with one another in that gathering. He's not doing it just because he's a party pooper. He doesn't want them to have fun in church. He's doing it not to oppress certain members of the church. Rather, what he's doing is applying the principle of love to their corporate gatherings. He's applying the principle of love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to the expression of their gifts, to the use of their gifts in that corporate gathering. He's saying this is what it will look like if you love one another when you come together. So look at our passage with me, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And all the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Dear Father, we come to you and we ask that you would feed us by your word. We pray that you would move by your spirit, that we would rightly hear and rightly understand and rightly take to heart this word of yours to us. Help us to respond in submission and obedience. Help us to respond in repentance and faith. Uh, please, Lord, we, we ask you to work in the midst of this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, the Corinthians were living selfishly in a variety of ways. They prized their own personal expressions uh, of, of spirituality in a way that did damage to others in the church. So Paul has been showing them the more excellent way, the way of love. Last week we saw that we must use our gifts in a certain way if we want to glorify God and build up the church. So Paul continues this line of thinking this week. But the main thrust of his argument here is that everything in the church should be done with order and decency, but not 
just for the sake of order and decency. Rather, order and decency promotes what he's aiming at in the building up of the church. If you have chaos in the midst of your gatherings, no one's going to be built up because no one's going to know what's going on. And so he lays down these rules for the Corinthians uh, in order that there would be uh, not chaos, but order in the church. So as we walk through this passage together, I want to give you three rules that Paul lays down for the Corinthians. Three rules, really, for also when we uh, gather together as a church. And these guidelines will have a couple of results. First, following these rules will help us to love one another well in the use of our gifts. Second, they will promote order in our gatherings so that we will build one another up in love. So the first rule for our gatherings is the rule of edification. The rule of edification. That's, that's the rule of building up. So here at the beginning of our passage in verse 26, he's giving a summary application of all that has preceded. So he says, what then, brothers? In other words, uh, so what does this mean? What is all this that I've, I've already written to you? What does this mean for our church? What is the application for us? And he says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So a hymn, one brings perhaps a, a song that they had written to share with the, the community of faith, a lesson, some sort of uh, teaching in order to build up the community. A revelation probably points to what he's been talking about before, a, a certain prophecy, a word from God for the rest of the church. A tongue also would be a word from God, but in a, uh, a language unknown to the speaker, which then, if they follow Paul's directions, would be interpreted by either the one speaking or by someone else. Now, what Paul is doing here is not giving an exhaustive list of what should be done in the gathering. And he's not saying each and every individual has to bring one of these things. He's giving an example of what might take place in the early meeting of the church. His emphasis here is on a variety of gifts, but for the one purpose. A variety of different uh, functions, a variety of, of different services, of gifts, but all for this one purpose. Look what he says, let all things be done for building up. The rule of edification. Paul's concern throughout this letter, especially if we've seen in the last few chapters, has been what? Let all things be done for building up, for building one another up in the faith, in the church. He repeats this over and over again. You wonder if the Corinthians are thinking, uh, Paul, there's a little echo in your writings here. You're saying the same things over and over again. Let all things be done for edification. When, uh, when I run a baseball practice for uh, boys 9 and 10 years old, there are a few things we focus on. And we focus on them every single practice, time and time again, sometimes multiple times in the same practice. So there's fielding, there's throwing, there's batting, there's base running. That's about it for baseball, right? That's what you do, fielding, throwing, base, batting, and base running. So if a, a kid came up to me and said, hey, can we do something different in practice today? Can we focus maybe on, on shooting basketball or you know, bowling a bowling ball? Or something? I would say, no, that's not what you need to do. I would rather repeat over and over again, here are the fundamentals of baseball, and here's what we're going to do. Now, I'll, I'll change up the the drills a little bit, and we'll have some fun with it. But, for instance, every practice we will run from home plate to first plate, first base as hard as you can 
not slowing up. And then when you get there, what do you do? You turn out to the fence so that you don't get caught and tagged out by the first baseman. You do that every single practice. You do it at least twice every single practice. Repetition is the key to working these things into our minds. And for Paul, this was such a foundational, fundamental Essential issue that he has no problem repeating it over and over again. So I will have no problem repeating it to you as well. If you've been here the past few weeks, you've heard me say this. Let all things be done for the edification of the church, for the building up of the church. Now, I happen to think that we are pretty good about the way that we use our gifts and services. So I want to take a moment and encourage you. Thank you for serving your church in a way that seeks to build one another up. Thank you for not serving in a selfish way, trying to bring attention to yourself. Because I don't see many of you doing that. Rather, I see various people throughout our church serving in a variety of different ways. And in each of those ways, it helps to build up the church. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for being faithful in this. You've probably heard it said in many churches or organizations, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I don't think that's true in our church. That's something we should rejoice in. That's something we should be thankful for, that each one of our members has some gift or service that he can contribute to the church. So thank one another. Be, be generous and liberal in your thanksgiving to one another. Recognize what each one has done to build up the church and then express it to them in words. Say, thank you, brother, for your gift in setting up. It really means a lot to me that we have these chairs and we can come and everything's already ready by the time I get here. Thank you so much for serving in, in taking the chairs down and packing everything away. I'm at a place in my life and our family where we can't do that. And so thank you for doing that. Be sure to express your thankfulness for those who serve in such a way to build the church up. It's the first rule for our gatherings is the rule of edification. The second rule for our gatherings is the rule of limitation. Of limitation. Paul lays this rule down in verses 27 to 35 as he looks at tongues, prophecy, and then some certain women who were in the church. So he lays down some rules in order to limit uh, the chaos, which was evidently a part of the Corinthian church. But in these rules... The members are expected to limit themselves as well. So limitation for the sake of order done out of love for one another. So look at the limits that he places on these brothers and sisters in the church in Corinth. Um, look at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at the most three in each in turn and let someone interpret but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So there are mainly three rules that he gives for those who are to speak in tongues. And he, he even gives the condition if someone has a tongue. So it's not necessarily the case that someone will have a tongue. There's a possibility that no one will. But if someone has a tongue to share, uh, a language to speak then there should be two or three at the most, he says. There should be two or three at the most. He sets a limit on the number of people that could do this. He sets another limit. Each one must go in turn. So if there are two, they can't go at the same time. One must go, then when the, he is finished, the other must come up after him. One more rule that he gives for tongues is someone must interpret. Right? 
someone must interpret. Even if it's the person who is speaking the language, he must give an interpretation or someone else must stand up to give the interpretation. If not, then you should keep it, you should keep silent in the church. Keep it a private thing between you and God, he says. Now, it's amazing looking at this list of rules, how many churches who are, who do um, practice the gift of tongues don't practice them in line with Paul's rules for how they should do it. Two or three at the most. Uh, I told you about my experience at a, a, a church that didn't use the gifts rightly one time. There's no way they were doing two or three at the most, and they were all doing it the, at the same time. Uh, and it was chaotic. It, you couldn't gain anything from what was going on there. So Paul lays down these, these rules. He also lays down uh, rules for prophecy. Uh, in a similar way, he says two or three prophets may speak. Um, two or three prophets may speak. And he does say that they should be one at a time as well. The others, meaning prophets or elders, I think, are to weigh what is said. They're to weigh what is said, just like the people of the Old Testament were to weigh whether or not uh, certain individuals were false prophets or not. If what the prophet spoke was not in line with the word of God, they were to reject that prophet. And in a similar way, uh, the others would weigh what was said and determine whether or not it was in accordance with the word of God. It's interesting, uh, this other instruction he gives, in the case of another revelation, so you have one who is prophesying, and one who is seated, who is a prophet, he says, if a revelation comes, then the one who is speaking should be silent and the prophet should, should stand up and give his word. It's almost uh, like there is a, a, a necessity that is placed upon him. It, it, takes some, it would have taken some judgment for the one who was seated to recognize if this prophecy was worth silencing the other one who was already speaking at the time. Uh, we, we don't know the context of, of this situation, so we probably don't know all the details exactly of what Paul means. But notice the, even the self-limitation that this would require on the part of the prophets. For the one who was standing up speaking, it would require self-limitation for him to defer to his brother who said, I have a word to speak that is important for the people of God to hear. Can you imagine the humility that that would take for him to, to be seated to defer to his brother. It would also require self-limitation on the one who was seated to recognize whether this was a word important enough to shut up his brother in order to speak it to the church. Right? They would both need to uh, have self-control over these gifts that were given to him. And the purpose, he says, is that all may learn and be encouraged. So each one could prophesy, each prophet, each in turn, so that all may learn and be encouraged. Uh, and then the, the final rule of prophecy would be what we've already mentioned, self-control. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. I take that to mean that these prophets were to have self-control even in the midst of receiving these revelations from God, even in the midst of receiving this amazing gift from God. And the reason for all this order, these rules that Paul lays down, is this, for God is not of confusion but of peace. So his, his goal in this is to promote order in the church. So there might be an objection here at this point. Why are you putting a straitjacket on the Holy Spirit? 
Why are you limiting the Holy Spirit by these, these rules that are so constraining? How can you tell someone to control the gift of these amazing languages that they have? How can you tell someone to control this gift of prophecy where they're speaking the words of God to the people of God? But t- take note of this, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit is not opposed to self-control. Right? The Holy Spirit is not opposed to self-control. In fact, self-control is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. So how could we say that, that you're limiting the Holy Spirit by having self-control? No, it is directly in line with the Spirit's work. And so I want to ask a question. How do you know if the Holy Spirit is active and at work in the midst of a congregation? Many would answer that question by saying, well, there's a certain feeling that you have, a certain warmth in your heart that you have when you know the Holy Spirit is present. Uh, some, w- some might would say, well, there's a feeling of excitement in the room when the Spirit is at work. Now, I'm not saying these things can't be the case, but how do you know if that feeling you had is because you had a really good breakfast uh, and, and you just feel really strong and energized? How do you know it's not because of the caffeine that was in the coffee? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is active among you? Several ways, but the first of which was already outlined in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where he says, here's how we know what is spiritual. Is Jesus proclaimed as Lord? Is the Lord Jesus Christ high and exalted in your midst? Is he prized? Is he treasured in your midst? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is living and active among you. Another way to know is, is His fruit present in the lives of your brothers and sisters as we gather together? Is this fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Are these things present in your lives as you interact with one another? As we interact on a regular basis, is God displaying His fruit among us. Now hopefully there will be excitement. Hopefully there will be joy because we have been saved completely by His grace. How could we not be joyful at that? And yet if there is an excitement and enthusiasm and the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit is not present, if there is an excitement and love and peace is not present among us, then as Paul says at the beginning of chapter 13, it's all worthless. All the use of our gifts, any amazing feats that we perform through uh, faith in the Holy Spirit, anything that we do is worthless if we don't have love for one another. So how do we know if the Spirit is present among us? Is His fruit being expressed among us? Is the Lord Jesus Christ being exalted in our midst? Then we will know that the Holy Spirit is present among us. Very briefly, he gives one more rule uh, for, for when the, the people of God come together. And it's directed toward, I think, a particular group of women in the church. We're, again, we're not entirely sure what uh, the context is in this passage. But you can't read this passage along with the earlier passage about women praying and prophesying in church and conclude that it's a universal prohibition from women speaking in the church. Right? We, we read Scripture and interpret it according to the rest of Scripture. So Paul 
you'd have to say he either changed his mind or he just got mixed up and he had forgotten what he already said. Or you say, no, this is the word of God. This is Holy Scripture. Uh, it's not entirely clear to us all the, t- all the time, but it's because we are a sinful people. We're impacted by our own uh, judgments. So how might we read this, this particular uh, rule that Paul lays down. I think that it has to do with women in the context of prophecies and the judging of prophecies. I think it has to do with women, a group of women who were uh, usurping authority in the church and pronouncing judgments or asking questions about certain prophecies that took place. A role that was reserved for other prophets and particularly elders. Um, so they are perhaps even questioning their own husbands as they gave prophecies and Uh, usurping the the authority of their husbands in the midst of the corporate gathering. And so he says, if you have questions about those prophecies, go home and ask them about it. Don't usurp their authority or question them in in an independent way in the midst of the corporate gathering. But all of these instructions are geared toward limiting oneself for the sake of order, which is for the sake of edification, which is for the sake of love for one another. See, what the problem is, if you cannot limit yourself, if you cannot control yourself and you have to assert your own individual expression, the problem is pride, isn't it? Um, Brian Regan, the comedian, calls this the me monster. Have you ever heard of that? The me monster. What the me monster is, is when you're having a conversation with someone and you tell them a story, you tell this group of people a story and someone pipes up and says, ah, oh, that's nothing. I've, I've got a better story. And they begin to tell their story. Well, this affects all of us, doesn't it? Because whenever we're in a group of people and we're hearing a story, a story comes up in our mind that is similar along the same lines or maybe it's completely different. Something we're thinking through our own story rather than listening intently to our brother and sister because we we are self-absorbed too often we're interested in our own stories we think our stories are better than other people's stories each one of us has this me monster inside of us and what it is is pride pridefulness we think we are more important than others so what's the solution then but humility but humbling ourselves in the midst of one another, for the sake of order and love, deferring to one another out of love. Ultimately, if you have a problem limiting yourself in conversations where you're always the one speaking, there may be a problem with pride there. There's a variety of other ways that this may happen. But pride is a universal human problem and the only solution is to humble ourselves before God and before one another practicing self-limitation deferring to one another self-control for the purpose of love and of any and all people who should be the most humble shouldn't it be Christians shouldn't it be us who have more humility than anyone else sometimes we we actually think of ourselves in a more prideful way because we're Christians. And what sense does that make? As if we are more righteous than others, as we really know the way, so there's something special about us. But Christ shows us the way in his own humiliation. He who had all things in the heavenly places, who was one with his heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit, from all eternity humbled himself.
by entering into time and space, by becoming a human being, and not just any ordinary human being. He could have come down and humbled himself by taking on on human flesh and become a great king. Even that would have been humiliation for Jesus. The great God of all the heavens, King of kings and Lord of lords, being a merely earthly king. And yet, what do we see in the life of Christ? But he considered all of that as nothing to be clung to, but he gave himself and became a humble servant. He had nothing during this life. And yet he humbled himself further still to be beaten, to be mocked. He deferred his own will for the sake of you and me, for the sake of his people. He humbled himself to a humiliating death on the cross, a shameful death on the cross for our sake in order to save us. By his grace you are saved. Not by your works, not even by Uh, your own inherent faith, but even this is a gift from God. Brothers and sisters, you are saved by sheer grace and mercy because of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can be proud about in and of yourself. Boast only in the Lord and His grace for you. And this should overflow. This should flow out of our lives so that others see it, so that our brothers and sisters see it, so that outsiders, neighbors, co-workers, and friends, unbelievers see our true humility. Each one ought not to think too highly of himself, but to humble himself as the Lord Jesus Christ has humbled himself. This is the second rule of, that Paul lays down for the church in our gatherings is the rule of limitation. The third rule third house rule of the church in our gatherings is the rule of revelation, of revelation, verses 36 to 40. Our lives should be ruled by the word of God, by the revelation that he has given. Our churches should be ruled by the word of God, by the revelation that he has given. Uh, Even our gatherings must be ruled by The word of God, the revelation that God has given to us. So Paul attacks the pride of the Corinthians here. He says, the word of God did not originate with you. Don't be so prideful as to think the word of God originated with you. Now God has spoken to you, it's clear, Paul says, but you're not the only one. He's attacking their pride. And he goes further and says, okay, any of you who think you're a prophet... Any of you who think you're spiritual, if you are those things, you'll acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the command of the Lord. It is revelation from God himself. Paul is very conscious that he is writing spirit-breathed words. These are not just my words, Paul says. These are the words of the Lord. These are the commands of the Lord that he has given for the order in the church, for the upbuilding in the church. And these the words of the Lord should govern, govern who you are and what you do. So rule number one was edification, building up in the church. But we don't get to decide what it is that builds up. We don't get to decide what it is that edifies one another. Rather, we are ruled by the word of God. We must submit ourselves to his revelation. And from the New Testament, we get a picture of the sort of things we ought to be doing when we come together week in and week out. 
Why? This is why we have committed ourselves to doing very specific things when we gather together as a church. What do we do? We read the Word of God. We preach the Word of God. We administer the Lord's Supper and baptism. We pray together. We sing together. We exercise our spiritual gifts for the sake of others. And everything is done in love for building one another up. We do these things because God has commanded us to do these things. And He will be faithful to work in us in these even ordinary means. So we will do this. We will do these things as we submit ourselves to the rule of revelation, to the rule of God's Word. So we must do this as a church. But consider also how... We must do this as individual members of the church, submitting ourselves to the rule of God's word. Consider for yourself, teenagers, children. Are you submitting yourselves to the rule of God's word? Because God is Lord overall. He is master. You remember what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, keep a close watch on yourself. And on your doctrine. Keep a close watch on your life. And your doctrine. Persist in this. For by doing so you will save. Both yourself and your your hearers. There must be a persistence. In the life. Of Timothy. To keep watch over his own life. And his own doctrine. And I think there is an indirect. Application to each and every one of us. As Jason and I, as your elders, shepherd you and watch over you, you must be persistent in keeping a close watch on your own life and your doctrine. So what does this mean? How can you do this? How can you keep a a close watch on your life and doctrine? Well, I think one way to do that is by confessing your sins to one another. Each one of us has a tendency to become deceived about who we are, but it can't happen if we are transparent with one another and we are confessing our sins to one another. What about if you have certain doubts about fundamental doctrines of the, of the gospel? You ought to confess those to your brothers and sisters in Christ so that they can keep you accountable, so that they as well can keep a close watch on your life and doctrine. Because usually, someone falling away from the faith doesn't happen all at once. Rather, it happens bit by bit by bit. Small step by small step by small step. Think about how cancer often works. Often it works imperceptibly at first. No one recognizes anything different in the way you look or the way you act. But slowly, there is a, a cell that is working against you. The cancer is slowly growing within you. And it may go undetected for months and months, and you don't even know about it. Well, in a similar way, sin affects us if we're not careful, if we don't keep a close watch on our life and doctrine. So I know of a man who, a young man, who had uh, a wife, I think two children, several years ago, who walked away from his church. He walked away from his family. He was a deacon at his church, at a faithful, gospel-loving church in which the elders shepherded them well. How, How do you think it happened with this young man that he would walk away from all of this, all that he knew to be true, and um and attach himself to a girl that he met online? How it happens is it first kind of took root in his heart as maybe an option, where he just kind of 
thinks about the possibility. He was drawn aside in some way, imperceptible to everyone around him, imperceptible to his elders. But he wasn't keeping a close watch on his life. He wasn't keeping a close watch on his doctrine. I can imagine maybe it took months and months before he decided to finally pull the trigger. He wasn't guarding his heart. He wasn't guarding his life and his doctrine. Brothers and sisters, let us be persistent in this. Submitting ourselves to the rule of God over us. Submitting ourselves to the revelation that he has given us. This guy probably thinks what he's done is a lot of fun. But it will turn out to his eternal ruin if he does not repent and come back to the Lord in faith. Let's be persistent in submitting ourselves, brothers and sisters, to the rule of God over us for his glory and for our own ultimate good. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.